You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. On this, the final Sunday of the church year, as we conclude our journey with the Gospel of Luke, we began by singing a hymn based on an ancient song from its first chapter. It's a song that's placed on the lips of the thoroughly amazed father of John the Baptist, Zachariah, who is finally set free from his imposed silence and sings, Blessed be the God of Israel who comes to set us free. Zacharias sings with a heart full of pride and expectation, with words of salvation and deliverance yet to come. And his son, he knows, will be a prophet of the highest, preparing the way of the Lord. And then he proclaims this breathtaking hope for the future As Eugene Peterson put it in the version we heard this morning, God's sunrise will break in upon us, shining on those in darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way, one foot at a time, down the path of peace. It is an amazing vision of God's presence among the people. It's full of dreams, optimism for the future, And one can only hope that Zechariah didn't live long enough to see how things turned out. That he never knew another Herod would serve up his grown son's head on a platter. Or that this bright shining hope for the future of which he sang would one day hang from a cross. Which brings us to our second reading From Luke's gospel in the 23rd chapter, here we are confronted with Jesus on the cross surrounded by two thieves with a sign above him which reads, with dark humor and a clear warning, this is the king of the Jews. Now prior to this scene, Jesus was dragged before the religious council, those folks who were appointed by the Romans and served at the whim of Rome, And he was also dragged before Pilate, who was eager to secure his own power base at the time. Pilate seems a bit bemused at all the intrigue, and he sends Jesus off to Herod, who ridicules him. Yet fully aware of the limits of his own political power, Herod ultimately sends Jesus back to Pilate, and Pilate loses interest in the game even as he attempts to get out of the loop, but ultimately he doesn't care. And it's in his indifference that the system moves forward as it was designed to do to protect itself and its power by eliminating threats. 
So here we have religious leaders and political powers all desperately trying to maintain the status quo, to keep the machinery running, to hold on to their own fiefdoms of power and influence. And then in contrast, Jesus stands alone outside their circles of power, without labels of Pharisee or Zealot, Sadducee or Essene. Throughout the gospel, we have seen that Jesus does not claim a group identity other than that of the realm of God that he has been proclaiming in word and deed. As he eats with outcasts, touches the sick, listens to foreigners, and lifts up the poor and the forgotten. In a deeply ironic move, the king of the Jews is crucified in a manner in which the empire deals with troublemakers, public humiliation, and death. You see, crucifixions happen only to rid the empire of a threat, but it's also a sign to the rest of us. Don't follow in this guy's footsteps. And on this last Sunday of the church year, the church universal around the globe proclaims in one voice, this is our king. Our reading from Colossians, however, seems more fitting for a reign of Christ Sunday celebration, doesn't it? It's so far removed from Luke's story. It includes this glorious Christ hymn, imagining Christ as a figure of cosmic proportions. Most traditional translations put it, he is the image of the invisible God. And the Greek word for image here is icon. Christ is the icon of the invisible God. And it's here I really appreciate the message's wording for the passage, which reads, we look at this son, S-O-N, and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. I often say it this way, and it was included in our call to worship, that in Jesus we see the very heart of God revealed to us. The writer of the hymn in Colossians says, He is the firstborn of all creation, the one who holds the cosmos together, the beginning and the end. So spacious is he. The message puts it so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Now that's a king worthy of worship, isn't it? An expansive vision encompassing all, encompassing all of creation. Now it's important to keep in mind that Colossians was written in the context of Roman imperialism. The great Caesar Augustus was once praised by the words, land and sea are at peace. The citizen, cities are flourishing in good order. You see, in the first century, it was the emperor who has made war to cease and ordered the world with peace. Roman power spread with far-reaching boundaries, exercising dominion over ethnic groups, bringing unity, yes, albeit under military force, to very diverse peoples. 
And the propaganda of Rome included some very grandiose claims. The emperor was savior, son of God, the embodiment of the divine. So we can see the writer of Colossians with its great hymn of praise is staking out what is a very dangerous political claim. Christ is the image of God, the song proclaims, not the emperor. Our kingdom is the kingdom of God. It is not the empire of Rome as mighty as it may be and as it may seem. So, if with the writer of Colossians, we affirm that when we see Christ, we see the fullness of the invisible God, how does that change what we see in the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel. If we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, what do we see in him in that moment? I think first and foremost, there where no one can miss it, we see a king crucified, humiliated, one deemed a threat to the powers that be. The vulnerability of Jesus on a cross cannot be avoided. Secondly, we come face to face with a king who forgives. In a world where some seeking power hold grudges and personal vendettas, exacting revenge on perceived enemies, we follow a king who forgives forgives the one who seeks to keep their hold on power, and forgives the ones who blindly followed the whims of political leaders. I think also in the desolation of crucifixion, we see a king who finds solidarity with a criminal with someone who reaches out to the despised. We see someone who promises to be present with them in that painful process of execution and humility in the stark reality of death. Jesus says he is there. This, this is our king. And these days, the church needs to keep its eyes on Jesus, or we will lose our way yet again. This week, we lost a great womanist theologian, Dolores Williams. She grew up in the South, and she would tell the story of Sunday mornings in her childhood church, where the minister would ask the congregation, who is Jesus? And in response, the great gospel choir would sing out loud and strong, King of kings and Lord Almighty. And then Williams remembers that in response, little Miss Huff, in a quiet voice, would softly sing her own answer. Poor little Mary's boy. And then back and forth, the choir and Miss Huff, King of kings, poor little Mary's boy. Looking back, Williams would say, it was the black church doing theology. Who is Jesus? He's the king of kings, but that cannot be the only answer. You have to include poor little Mary's boy. 
You see, the church lives in this tension between the full-throated praise of King of Kings and the sorrowful poor little Mary's boy. It is a difficult place to be. But we must stay there if we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Our allegiance as Christians is not to a political party, an economic theory, or a national identity, but to this king of kings who hangs on a cross between two thieves. We have an unhealthy tendency, I think, to get swept along in secular messianic fevers in which we look for political figures to do the work of the kingdom of God for us. But when we elevate the political realm of our nation or any nation to the level of ultimate reality, of truest reality, to the arena of absolutes, I believe we commit idolatry. In the words of one of my favorite Baptist preachers, Will Campbell, who described himself as a bootleg preacher, in his book written together with James Holloway, entitled Up to Our Steeples in Politics, he writes, politics is our bail. It has become an idol for us, a false messiah in which we place all of our hopes. Somehow we have been seduced into a worldview that sees our politics as redemptive. Now, don't get me wrong. Political decisions matter. Political decisions can provide remedies to social ills. They can provide a safety net for those in need of help. They can provide access to health care. They can ensure rights for those who have been systematically excluded. They can right long-standing wrongs. And at its best, Hopefully, they can restrict the power of greed and protect the common good. Yes, politics can and does make a difference, but politics will not cure all of our ills. Our allegiance as Christians can't be to a political party. It can't be to an economic theory. Our allegiance isn't to a country or to a flag. We are called not to pledge allegiance to anything or anyone but Christ. Our confession of faith is deceptively simple. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. Messiah, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, our faith is not in politics, political parties, presidential candidates, ballot measures, legislative agendas, judicial rulings. No, we pledge allegiance to Christ, and when we do, over and over again, day after day, we are shaping our lives according to God's vision of shalom and not the world's understanding of power. It was in 1925 that Pope Pius XI instituted the observation of this Sunday, Christ the King, or the Reign of Christ Sunday. The horrors of the First World War weighed heavy in Europe, and the rumblings of fascism were beginning to gain power. And he wondered, could the church stand and resist? 
Could a focus on the reign of Christ be a counterbalance to this turn to fascism that he saw? It was a noble effort. It was perhaps a little bit naive. And unfortunately, I think, also done with an eye to the church regaining political power. Luke's depiction of the crucifixion is something else. It remains an unflinching critique of how the church understands and seeks to use power in the world. We hold that image up against the rising forces of white Christian nationalism in our society, and then we can see that movement for what it is. It is a dangerous perversion of the gospel in which the way of the cross is abandoned as an unholy crusade emerges to seize cultural power once more. The intermingling of Christian symbols with political ones intentionally blurs the lines between religion and politics and leads people astray. But when we look to the cross and when we affirm Christ as both King of Kings and poor little Mary's boy, we intentionally lay down claims to domination. We are refusing to impose our beliefs upon others by force or violent political means. On this Reign of Christ Sunday, our pledge is allegiance to Christ. Nothing else but Christ. And not a gilded, glorious Christ. But, as in the words of the Apostle Paul, Christ crucified. Pledging allegiance to Christ and learning to reject the idolatry of politics doesn't mean that we give up the political process, but it does mean that we refuse to be defined by that process. And instead, we reclaim our identity as people who declare our allegiance to a crucified king. When we look to the cross and we learn to train our eyes to see both the King of Kings and poor little Mary's boy, we see Jesus side by side with the oppressed, with the marginalized, with the poor, with the left behind and forgotten. And we find ourselves drawn to be more like him. Not once a year on Reign of Christ Sunday, but every single day. It puts a demand upon us to continually be critiquing our own faith and our practices to find the ways in which we have sided with power and against the crucified Christ. New Testament scholar Matt Skinner says it well, I think, when he suggested that in our time, Christians need to be practicing critical reflection in our faith regularly asking ourselves, what one thing am I going to do today to chip away at the theological assumptions that continue to sow misogyny, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and exceptionalism in our mainline 
churches and seemingly respectable institutions, practices, rhetorics, and confessions. What one thing will I do today to lessen my complicity in systems of oppression? In what way will I show that my allegiance is with Christ's crucified King of Kings and poor little Mary's boy? Reverend Tom Carruth in the book, Jesus and His Kingdom of Equals, offers a reflection on the realm of Christ entitled, Someone Somewhere. He writes, the kingdom of love is coming because someone, somewhere someone is kind when others are unkind. Somewhere someone shares with another in need. Somewhere someone refuses to hate while others hate. Somewhere someone is patient and waits in love. Somewhere someone returns good for evil. Somewhere someone serves another in love. Somewhere someone is, calming in a, is calm in a storm. Somewhere someone is loving everybody. Is that someone you? Every act of love, Jesus shows us, is an act of resistance to the forces of darkness, of division, and hate. Every act of welcome is an extension of God's graciousness revealed in Jesus and made known in the cruelty of the cross. May we live today as disciples of the crucified Christ, King of Kings, and poor little Mary's boy. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.